0: Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello, my name is Greg Monteith. This episode concerns self deceit, and in that regard, it carries on from the previous several episodes. Specifically, This episode offers more concrete examples of self-deceit in the context of evangelical Christianity. I will not, however, be re-summarizing self-deceit or explaining how it functions here. For a summary or explanation of self-deceit, I would direct you to the opening ten minutes of episode number 174. This episode contains a further series of examples of self-deceit in evangelical Christian contexts. The first several examples will be examined in the same fashion as those examined in Episodes 174 and 175. The remainder, for the sake of time, will be summarized only. A fourth example of evangelical dysfunction, based in self-deceit, occurred after I had been teaching for several years in a church with an older member, a former pastor, of the congregation who presents himself in a mild-mannered way. At the end of my morning teaching session, I expressed my view that Given what I had seen over the last few years, the church appeared much more interested in maintaining the status quo. He told me angrily that if I did not, quote, like how things were done, quote, in this church, I should, quote, go someplace else, quote. This former pastor then got up to preach the sermon. Nor did he ever approach me later to apologize for, or even discuss, his comments. Now on the one hand, we might wonder, how is self-deceit involved here? Certainly this outburst is inappropriate, but the nature of the event appears clear and straightforward. Indeed, how can anything be more clear than direct confrontation where someone plainly speaks his mind? If so, what indication do we have that deception, particularly self-deceit, is at play here rather than, for example, a former minister taking it personally and defending his community from what he sees as an attack or even defamation? What tips us off to the presence of self-deceit in this case is the combination of extreme behaviors each of which is out of character for the individual further the effect of these behaviors is actually to discredit the individual rather than fulfilling the supposed goal of defending or supporting the community in other words it is completely uncharacteristic for a normally mild-mannered and warm individual to act in a harsh cold way on top of this When this person does so in a church setting where he would normally be conscious of being overheard, which indeed he was, yet makes no effort at any public or private follow-up or even damage control, whether to apologize or simply say a few pleasant words, this is even more out of character. Further, the combination of these two events actually discredits him as someone attempting to defend his community from a perceived attack, because his supposed defense is made by acting out the very thing he claims to stand against. More so, by disregarding what the community prizes the most, in this case, this community prizes the full acceptance of others, and his blatant willingness to lose face or lower his reputation in the community, without the least attempt to remedy the matter in the eyes of the community, this shows a clear disregard for the community itself. Now that we can see the darker side of this situation, we're better placed to start asking questions informed by self-deceit. So, who benefits from this action? What is the motivation of such action? And an additional question, what is the result of the action? I'll start with the result. The effect on a few who witnessed this was anger, but mostly it was shock and disbelief. Had this really happened? The result is that the observers were dazed and therefore distracted from thinking about anything beyond the immediate surface level content. Yet on a semi or unconscious level, the levels were self-deceit functions. This may have been exactly the aim. Further, when shock and daze result from the behaviors of evangelical Christians within those Christian contexts where they are well known, there is a powerful and unconscious drive by Christian observers to harmonize the situation. With one's dominant understandings. In this case, there was a drive to rationalize his comment, given that he was a respected person. Particularly, as a respected and mild-mannered person, he still became angry. So, maybe I was wrong, which would mean that he's right, and so maybe I should leave or repent. This leads to the motivation. My interpretation is that the motivation was precisely to keep people focused on the obvious surface level message. In fact, by making the message remarkably out of proportion with the comments that he was responding to, the message, and its result of causing shock, daze, and an unconscious impetus to make it make sense, the message was meant completely to capture our attention, mine included. In this way, it would act as a smokescreen and keep me from looking more deeply at the community's unwillingness to question the status quo. What about the benefit, though? How can he benefit if he loses face in his own community? And why did he not attempt to save face by making amends in some way, whether then or later? On the one hand, as I noted above, the logic of his actions indicate that he is simply not concerned about how the community views him, and by extension, he is not actually concerned about the community either. In my view, the benefit that he is seeking with his actions is to distract me and indeed to keep himself from looking at the obvious connection between the community's failing and his responsibility for it as their former leader. He was their former pastor. In this way, the benefit is that he is indirectly protecting himself from having to consider his role in the problem. The greater benefit still, however, is that his action effectively allows him to cover up for the fact that he is not only partly responsible for the community's failings, but he is in fact, he has in fact benefited from them. By helping to create a community that is unwilling to be self critical, any of his own blameworthy actions within the community would have naturally been shielded from criticism. Does this seem like a stretch? Yet, when you think about it, this is exactly what just happened. A man spoke in a manner that was not defensive, but angry, domineering, and destructive. More so, despite being overheard in a church saying something that was very unchristian. when did Jesus tell his disciples to value the status quo or just to leave? This man's actions were never raised, never criticized, and to my knowledge, nothing was ever done. And while he risked losing face, he seemed cool and collected rather than ruffled. It's almost as if he's gotten away with this in the past, so why should it be any different now? A fifth example concerns the complacency that individuals demonstrated regarding the status quo in their own Christian beliefs, especially where these individuals express open dissatisfaction with potentially key components of their beliefs. This story involves the same church as in my previous examples. This church undertook an 8 to 12 week Bible reading program, where people read the New Testament and then gathered to discuss what they had read. The discussion sessions were well attended, and I remained mostly silent throughout, rather than sharing my views, as I wanted to understand how participants were experiencing the program. What I witnessed was shocking. The majority of participants, all confessedly evangelical Christians, at one point or other over this period expressed confusion, concern, pain, and even outrage at what they were reading in the New Testament. Yet despite this, neither during the entire 8-12 to weeks nor afterwards was there a single attempt made or follow-up offered about how any of these participants engaged with any of their issues with the Bible in order to understand it better or simply come to terms with their negative responses. Here again, the sharp contrast between the strong responses and the lack of follow-up And between the importance of the Bible for evangelical beliefs, yet the seeming lack of implication for concerns about the biblical text for those same beliefs, are clues that self-deceit is at play here. So on the one hand, their initial concern and even anxiety is in stark contrast to their later inaction and seeming acceptance or apathy. Further, their willingness to accept potentially serious and potentially ongoing issues with the Bible, is in stark contrast to the fact that evangelical Christians are, by definition, people who take the Bible seriously and rely on it as a basis for their Christian belief. These stark contrasts between response and follow-up, and between values and actions, should prompt us to act, ask some questions, again informed by self-deceit. Specifically, such questions as, one, who benefits from this action? Two, What is the motivation for such action? And three, what is the result of the action? Let's start with the result, both for the individuals in question and for the larger community. The result of this action for the individuals in question appears to be mixed, both positive and negative, but I would wager that it is actually quite unified. In other words, by appearances, it would be both a benefit and a drawback for a Christian to express concern or complaint about the Bible and both a benefit and a drawback for such a person to remain inactive relative to such concerns and or complaints. However, I believe that this very mix of positive and negative itself represents a benefit, and that this is most clearly seen in that the contradiction between expressing concerns that are potentially critical for one's faith, yet remaining inactive in resolving them, this contradiction makes complete sense only when considered from the perspective of self-deceit. In other words, this process of complaint followed by inaction meets those deeper needs linked to self-deceit. On the one hand, the process allows for honesty, and so for catharsis, or a release of negative feelings, about something that is genuinely troubling. Yet this process also ensures that things stay the same, that the status quo remains unchanged. The result of this action for the community is likewise mixed, but also unified. So while it may be disconcerting for the community to have its members expressing confusion and even concern regarding the Bible, this gives the sense and the appearance that the community is healthy and faithful, while at the same time having the end result that, can, that the community norms also remain unchanged. Who benefits here? Well, in keeping with my previous comments, both the participants and the larger community benefit from this process. The participants benefit because they can speak their mind without having to pay the price of acting on their concerns and risking the impact of scrutinizing and so possibly needing to change or even abandon their beliefs. The larger community benefits from the security of having its status quo be maintained and not threatened despite and in certain ways because of the fact that its members may have concerns about the Bible and its meaning. So what is the motivation for embracing this contradictory process of complaint followed by inaction? An external motivation is that this process of questioning a complaint has the outward appearance of, or may be presented as, Christians, quote, persevering through difficulties, end quote, with their faith, giving the impression that the participants, and by extension the larger community, are healthy and faithful. Yet a deeper motivation can be detected As an expression of self-deceit. For example, outside of the specific discussion in which it was raised, by all appearances it simply did not matter to the participants that they were ill at ease with many parts of the New Testament. They neither sought to resolve their concerns nor sought help to understand how they might resolve them. The logical conclusion is that something else, not the Bible or its meaning, is their main reason for maintaining their Christian belief. Further, it is obvious that if these participants were to act upon their discomfort and begin researching the Bible and seeking answers, this would mean fundamentally changing how they engage with the Bible and even with their faith. It would mean, what I've termed before, owning their faith in a way that they do not currently. On the notion of ownership in faith, see the First Steps Module 6 on Self-Awareness, a past episode. Thus, the motivation for adopting such an approach of complaint followed by an action is that it allows the participants to conceal from themselves their deeper motivation, which is to maintain a status quo where they are observers and bystanders relative to their faith rather than participants and owners. I'm going to say that again, where they are a status quo, where they are observers and bystanders relative to their faith rather than participants and owners. While at the same time, they are claiming to be healthy and faithful followers of Christ. In this way, these participants prevent themselves from seeing their faith for what it is, essentially a piety stripped of content. And by that I mean, it's an outer husk of proper behaviors without any real internal content that one believes and is committed to as someone who owns his or her faith. And in this case, I'm meaning real biblical content because threat questions and issues with the biblical text simply did not matter. Now, it's important to note that there can, indeed, be a growing discomfort between the benefits that self-deceit allows and the difficulties that we undergo in order to reap these benefits, and that this tension can have a positive effect of pushing people to act outside of the routine established by self-deceit. For example, it was clear that one or two of the participants had a significant level of dissatisfaction that continued well after these discussions were over such significant prolonged dissatisfaction can actually be a vehicle to overcoming self-deceit. As such, it's crucial to note how discussions such as this 8-12 to week Bible reading program offer not only insight into the concern and frustration that many Christians have with the Bible's meaning and interpretation, but also offer an invaluable window into the mindsets, expectations, and habits of evangelical Christians when it comes to the Bible's role relative to their faith. If, instead, these discussions have been one initial step in a multi-step process of self-discovery, then this process could have offered important possibilities for developing self-awareness and even confronting self-deceit. As it was, it was mostly an occasion for self-deceit, and the status quo, to continue unabated. Finally, I want to note three other important indicators that self-deceit is present in evangelical Christian contexts. One, an overemphasis on unity, two, an aversion to risk-taking, and three, a sectarian focus rather than a Christian body focus. Beginning with the first indicator, an exaggerated emphasis on unity undercuts or subverts other crucial needs within the Church, whereas a healthy emphasis on unity supports and promotes other needs, needs that themselves both maintain and are in support of unity. As an example of overemphasizing unity, belying the presence of self-deceit, after a period of teaching at a church, I had arrived at an impasse with my teaching due to the unwillingness of a few participants first to listen to and consider the course content rather than immediately reacting and becoming argumentative. I drafted an email that identified the behaviors, drew connections between the behaviors and the participants' stated beliefs, and recommended changes in order to move forward. Yet when one of the church elders read my draft, she urged me not to send it, because critical, being critical of beliefs, even those that were inciting disruption in church programs would threaten, quote, the unity of the church, end quote. The counter logic of the request, where unity was equated with preserving existing norms of behavior at the expense of teaching, dialogue, and growth, and the clear aim of preserving the status quo, despite its dysfunctional and problematic impact, is a good indication that self-deceit is, dis- is driving such a request. The second indicator, aversion to risk-taking, or even to change, is a natural response within environments where maintaining the status quo is the priority. So while it is understandable for churches to avoid undue risks, actual risk aversion is quite different. Here are three markers of risk aversion. First, repeatedly prioritizing what is understood or familiar over what is questionable, debatable, or simply new. Secondly, any critical or final decisions about so-called risky endeavors are typically taken by a single individual, usually the pastor, or by a subset of the church's governing body. They are almost never taken to the entire governing body or to the church membership. Finally, The notion of risk versus safety is never discussed within the church. No policies about this notion exist. And even the definitions of risk and safety are always assumed. As if something that everyone should know or everyone should agree upon. In this regard, a good question to ask church leaders or a pastor at a prospective church is, what is your policy on risk taking? In all likelihood, the answer will be a puzzled look as no church that I am aware of has considered that the relationship between risk-taking and growth, both personal and corporate growth, is absolutely crucial to the Christian faith, and so should not be left to chance, but should have policies that both promote and constrain it. Stated differently, an aversion to risk-taking is in stark contrast to the example of Jesus, who, in the Gospels, is constantly taking risks by challenging his disciples, and particularly challenging religious authorities. Indeed, whether risk-taking involves challenging the religious majority, as with the prophets, or enlisting the aid of outsiders, as with Cyrus in Babylon, or the very act of God in striking agreements with humans, as with covenant formation with Abraham, Moses, etc., the Christian Bible is replete with examples of how risk-taking is necessary for growth and development. In this way, aversion to risk-taking, or playing it safe, is actually evidence that self-deceit is active by, on the one hand, ensuring that the existing systems and norms of the status quo are maintained, all the while, on the other hand, ensuring that the Church, and particularly its leadership, has the outward appearance of being prudent and godly, rather than appearing cowardly and disobedient. The third indicator, a sectarian focus rather than a Christian body focus, occurs when a subset of the Christian body is habitually prioritized over and to the detriment of the larger body. An example of this occurred when I was about to deliver one of my programs at a local church. Several people complained about my character, and the program was halted. As an aside, no details of what was complaint-worthy were given. What I finally understood was that one person objected to my housing situation Another that I had complained of bad service at a local business, and a third had a quote bad feeling end quote about me. And remarkably, one of these three people was a church elder. Once I understood the details, I expressed to the pastor that it was both unfair and unbiblical for Christians to hold something against another Christian, particularly matters of no substance or relevance such as here, and to use these to dismiss or even to slander another Christian without an opportunity for dialogue between the parties. The minister disagreed. In fact, he seemed not even to understand the need. Seeing this, I contacted his superintendent and expressed my view that this was a necess- an unnecessary fracturing of the Christian body and that, regardless of whether I deliver the program, a meeting should be held and the matter discussed as adults and as Christians. Yet both the pastor and the superintendency refused. For them, The important matter was to ensure that there was no threat to their church, that their flock and their people were not put at risk, whatever risk might mean in this context. As such, a sectarian focus, where one's own priorities, values, or preferences prevail over a Christian body or a body of Christ focus, indicates that self-deceit is at work. On the one hand, by preferencing their church over the broader Christian community, they ensure that the church's decision-making and standards of behavior, its status quo, are not brought into question. And they ensure that the pastor's image and authority remains untarnished, for he had agreed with his parishioners rather than challenging them, whereas they, like, they certainly would have been challenged in the course of a discussion. On the other hand, they presented the matter both as ensuring that the church and its leadership are safe and And that I clearly was a problematic person, in that I had complained to the superintendency about a matter where I should not have done so. These previously noted situations offer a glimpse of the dysfunction within evangelical Christianity that I have been arguing for for, throughout the last number of episodes. Nor are these random or one-off situations. I have encountered these approaches and behaviors in a dozen churches over the past decades, and no church I have experienced or heard of offers exceptions To the existence of these situations and practices. What is more, my appraisal of the main church from which I've drawn most of these examples is that it is generally a rather good church, and indeed much better than many I have attended. Yet these examples of dysfunction all have in common a basis in self-deceit, and my argument is that this is not the exception, but the norm. Thus in religious communities, and in this case specifically in evangelical Christian communities, Where self deceit is prevalent, this dysfunction manifests as particular sets of expectations and codes of conduct that are tacitly created and act as standards of faithfulness for that community. Let me repeat that. In the Christian communities, and specifically evangelical Christian communities where self deceit is prevalent, this dysfunction manifests as particular sets of expectations and codes of conduct that are tacitly created and act as standards of faithfulness for those communities. So whether similar to my previous examples or varied by type or degree, the creation of self-deceit-based standards of faithfulness affects not just the communities in question, but vast numbers of Christian communities. Yet these standards are not designed to develop Christ-likeness or to further God's kingdom, but to insulate deceitful practices within Christian contexts from identification and reform, and to protect those who participate in them from exposure and rebuke. As such, each of the above examples demonstrates one or more of such standards of faithfulness at play. Often this means that the same handful of standards recur in various forms and are actually mutually reinforcing. Or as I have stated before, they tend to run in packs such that where one is present, others are likely to be found as well. Further, we can decipher themes within these standards of faithfulness, and these themes appear almost designed to cultivate a lack of attention. To the deeper currents and norms within the community. The themes help disguise what these standards of faithfulness really are. These themes include beliefs that promote inactivity and a lack of reflection, Bible reading strategies that reinforce rather than challenge such beliefs, creativity in areas except those that would threaten conformity to these standards of faithfulness, individual expressions of discontent with the status quo without accompanying action, Leadership that avoids critique or denounces those raising it, without ever addressing the critique itself. An overemphasis on a distorted notion of unity, risk viewed as threat, and the group or tribe prioritized to the larger body. Notice then how each of the above themes compounds or reinforces at least one other theme, almost acting as fail-safes that provide overlapping protection against any one standard of faithfulness receiving too much critical attention. Which leads to several crucial points. First, it is crucial to understand that not every member of a community will or even should adhere to every standard or promote each of these themes. Rather, it is only crucial that no member of a community should overtly and persistently threaten any one of these standards or criticize any one of these themes. So, the overlapping or mutually reinforcing nature of these standards allows a diversity of views to exist, while nevertheless ensuring that all views always remain in check or subservient to the majority of the community's standards. For example, it allows an overemphasis on unity to quiet any real concerns that believing in effortless, guaranteed Bible reading is problematic. Or it allows an aversion to risk taking to cover over what might be seen as sectarian commitment rather than a Christian body or a body of Christ commitment. In short, these standards of faithfulness and the themes that underlie them allow diversity in areas that don't matter, while tacitly enforcing conformity in areas that do matter. They allow for diversity in areas that don't matter, while tacitly enforcing conformity in areas that do matter. Thus to those within the community, these standards of faithfulness essentially go unnoticed, and only their effect is perceived. This effect is to give the appearance of health and commitment to those within the community. Yet the effect they give to those on the periphery or outside of the community is rather different. For those outsiders on the periphery who are churchgoers or who have church background, the effect is to create alienation, to erect barriers to honest conversation, and therefore even to church attendance, such that those with valuable insights into these issues and potential willingness to offer productive feedback are necessarily excluded. For those outsiders who are agnostics or atheists, however, the effect is merely to reinforce their existing view that Christianity has no credibility and, as a result, is simply irrelevant. For this reason, attempts by Christians to convince agnostics or atheists of the value of Christianity are necessarily non-starters. Apologetics will continue to be meaningless until evangelical dysfunction is admitted and work to remedy it is embraced and embarked upon. And to those who overtly and persistently threaten or even question any of the community's standards of faithfulness, the result is being ostracized and even castigated, as I experienced with the church in my final example. Adding to their problematic nature is the fact that these practices are so difficult to detect precisely because they can appear at first blush to be so very biblical Yet in every case, these practices turn out to be one-sided responses to matters that the Bible depicts as being more complex, and thus requiring a richer response than these quote unquote standards allow. In my first example, we see community members endorsing the powerful assistance of the Holy Spirit and the priesthood of all believers. I'm going back to episode 173 and 174. Yet they equally fail to value, or even outright ignore, the universal effect of sin and the mandate. For interreliance implicit in the notion of the body of Christ. In my second example, we see a pastor advocating clarity and peaceable interaction from the pulpit, yet he actually he equally fails to value or outright ignores the clear and compelling need to reform within the community, and the accompanying need for seizing opportunities, improvisation, risk taking, and the courage that such situations demand. In a following example, we see community members living out the perseverance of believing when facing difficulties. Yet they equally fail to value or even outright ignore the various biblical imperatives to work out one's faith and to love God with our minds, as well as the blatant need to base beliefs upon what we consider to be truth if we are to maintain personal integrity and avoid hypocrisy. In a final example, we see an elder promoting church unity yet she equally fails to value or outright ignores, that Christian unity does not amount to keeping the peace, but is about seeking the truth in love. These last four episodes have been lengthy, and the material has admittedly been demanding. As such, you may find it helpful to re-listen to certain portions of episodes 173, 174, 175, and this episode, number 176, in order to be sure that the content is clear to you. Next podcast, I'll examine the biblical material related to self-deceit, and then begin detailing methods of identifying and mitigating self-deceit, including explaining how the material in Foundations of Flourishing has been designed to address this very issue. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your request, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.